1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the new College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. I'm Anna from the Institute of Art and Ideas. And this week I bring you a podcast on the contentious subject of whether violence is a force for good or evil in the world. From Israel to Korea and to Russia, from the French Revolution to the suffragettes, this week's podcast spans continents, centuries and leaders to debate the role violence should play in politics and society today. Is violence ever a justifiable political strategy, or has it hindered the creation of a better world? Leading public intellectual and author of Enlightenment Now, Stephen Pinker. Filmmaker and author of The Clash of Fundamentalisms, Tariq Ali. And Kurdish women's movement activist, Alif Sarikan, grapple with the forces of history to bring you the answers. As ever, we look forward to hearing what you thought of this episode. Please make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or iTunes to never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Over to Rana Mitter, who hosts this episode on the Fires of Progress.
2: Is violence ever justified in the pursuit of political or social aims? And where it is justified, how can we actually argue for it? And Tarek, could I start with you? Are there occasions when the use of violence can and should be justified in seeking political ends?
3: I think so. And I think history teaches us that. I mean, there are, of course, different forms of violence. I'm not and never have been a supporter of terrorism, uh, defined as it should be defined, either individual or that used by states. But I am a strong supporter of, historically speaking, of all the revolutions that have taken place, the slave rebellions that have taken place in history, starting, if you like, with the American Revolution against British colonialism, carrying on to the French Revolution, the Revolution of the Enlightenment, the link between the intellectuals prior to the revolution and the revolutionaries was very strong. The English Revolution, which laid the foundations of democracy. And, uh, of course, in the 20th century, we've had a whole wave of uh, revolutions and revolutionary struggles, which have deployed violence. The Russian Revolution, the Chinese, Vietnamese, Cuban, the huge anti-colonial struggles waged by the Vietnamese. So I'm afraid, it's very difficult studying modern or medieval history uh, or uh, early modern history to get away from this uh, idea of violence. And I think we have to detach the violence used by masses in motion uh, from acts of individual terror carried out for whatever reason or suicide terrorism or, or whatever. I mean, the struggle of people for their freedom has always involved violence because the people they're trying to gain independence from deploy it as well. So the choice is either to sit down and do nothing or to hope that peaceful agitation wins the day, which it never has, with very few exceptions, and, and to throw the path open to those who occupy, oppress, and uh, kill people ad nauseam. I mean, this goes on today, even as we're sitting here. Six wars are being waged in the, United, in the world by the United States, the most brutal of which, which is hardly mentioned, is the war in the Yemen being waged by Saudi Arabia and its allies backed by the United States and Britain. So what are the poor Yemenis to do? Thanks very much indeed, uh, Tarek. Stephen, we've heard that case that peaceful
2: engagement on its own simply hasn't been a useful way of changing society with the exception of a very few cases. You have spoken out for Better Angels uh, very, uh, very publicly. Would you agree with the case that Tarek has made?
4: Uh, No, I wouldn't agree. I guess I start from the premise that killing people is bad and killing uh, more people is worse than killing fewer people. So even though I I also don't support terrorism, uh, terrorists have killed a tiny number of people. The worst terrorist attack in history, 9-11, killed 3,000. Typical terrorist attack kills uh, a handful. Uh, whereas wars and revolutions kill people by the millions and tens of millions. And often uh, it is true, Tariq listed a number of violent events in human history, We did not make the argument that these are, uh, are good or justifiable. These were history's disasters. Now, I do believe that there are arguments that there can be occasions in which violence is justified if it is the only way to prevent greater violence. Again, I'm assuming that that murdering people is bad. If you disagree with that, then you can disagree with the whole argument. Now, did the events that we just uh, heard result in uh, the reduction of violence, prevention of killing of even greater numbers, which I suppose could be used as a utilitarian argument justifying violence? The answer is, in in virtually all the cases, no. The uh, French Revolution was a disaster, killed two million people led to the rise of Napoleon, perhaps the world's first totalitarian fascist dictator who began wars of conquest that killed another, an additional 4 million people, led to the restoration of slavery, to the restoration of the uh, monarchy, and a delay of democracy in France by uh, perhaps a century. Russian Revolution killed uh, several million, led to the Russian Civil War, which killed another 9 million, led to the rise of Stalin, who killed 20 million, there's an old cliche, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Well, it ignores the fact that people aren't eggs and that generally it does not result in an omelet. Again, the Chinese Revolution, perhaps the most disastrous event in in history, led to the the, uh, Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, which killed perhaps uh, 30 to, to 40 million people uh, altogether. Time and again, a violent revolution, violent uh, war, uh, in addition to the moral harm of mass murder, and again, I mean, murder, we're talking about millions or tens of millions of people, does not result in a stable, peaceful state that saves the lives of even more, quite the contrary. You know, a recent study by um, Maria Stefan and Erica Chenoweth, actually, looked over the last century at violent and nonviolent movement, resistance movements to put the Gandhian hypothesis to a test that, it, that there are ways of overcoming tyranny uh, using the, all of the tactics that, uh, that Gandhi worked out. So they decided to count uh, of the, all of the resistance movements of the 20th century. Uh, they divided them into violent ones and nonviolent ones. Putting aside the question of which was more moral, that is, which murdered fewer people, just ask the question of which is more effective. Now, it's not the case that violent resistance movements always succeed or that nonviolent ones fail or vice versa. But if you count them up, they found that nonviolent resistance movements were three times as effective as uh, violent ones. Doesn't mean the violent ones are never effective, but even in terms of sheer Efficacy: the non-violent ones uh, tend to have a higher success. Wait, rate.
2: When you say three times as effective, Stephen, do you mean they killed one third as few people? Or? No,
4: they uh, three times more often they resulted in uh, regime change.
2: Okay, that's an interesting definition and one uh, that I think we will have to come back to a, in the in the discussion. Of a final
4: mm-hmm. observation is that in a in a survey of what leads to stable democracies, uh, inspired in part by the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which I think we all agree was not a successful uh, measure to stall a a peaceful liberal democracy. That actually fits into a pattern that uh, decapitations of an existing tyrannical regime generally don't result in a uh, stable democracy. I'll add with one final observation. Uh, I'm Canadian. So uh, we actually did achieve independence from uh, Britain, non-violently, and uh, took a little bit longer than the United States. But the American Revolution was a pretty bloody uh, and, and brutal mess as well. And uh, Canada has a result, it is today one of the Uh, most stable, least violent, and most democratic societies on earth. Elie you know a great deal,
2: both in theory and in practice, about the way in which coercion, violence, and resistance have been used in certain very prominent recent conflicts. I wonder if you could give us your thoughts in the next couple of minutes.
0: So I think when we talk about whether violence or conflict is necessary for some sort of lasting change, I think it's important when we discuss these Um, the framework in which we discuss them in terms of, you know, we don't have the time for that right now, but even to acknowledge, you know, the history and the roots of the ideas of war, people mass murdering each other for, you know, whatever purpose or whatever means it may be. And I think from the historical references that we have access to, I think we can quite comfortably say that the history and the roots of war are also the history and roots of patriarchy. And this is the way the Kurdish movement and therefore Rojava kind of intercepts th- this this discussion. And
2: Just briefly explain what Rojava is. Uh,
0: so Rojava is a region in northern Syria that in 2012 uh, declared autonomy and declared a, what they call a social contract and not a constitution that they were going to rebuild and transform a society based on the principles of direct democracy, ecology and uh, women's liberation, so therefore gender equality. And I think you know that one of the themes are you know are, is violence necessary? And you know in a perfect world, no. But the point is, we have five thousand years of civilization, five thousand years of um, especially the oppression and suppression of women, five thousand years of um, the path, I suppose, to uh, capitalist modernity. That you know we may visibly where we live now see or feel less violence physically. But violence isn't just a physical uh, act. Violence is also, um, you know, manifests itself in many forms in every aspect of society. The
2: term structural violence. Structural is violence
0: used. and, you know, for example, states have monopoly over violence. So somehow their, their violence is more justified than the resistance of a people. So I understand. And in a perfect world, yes, there shouldn't be violence. But I, I don't agree that, you know, those these historical... Um, instances of revolutions have been, you know, disaster of catastrophes because yes, unfortunately, many people died in these, but they've also set very important precedents for humanity in terms of, you know, our understanding of how to live and um, how to organize. And now I would argue that we still have a long way to go, but, it's, but it is these resistances that have in many ways had to be physical resistances and therefore, you know, violent. To be able to somehow result in something. And this is the, this is, I know this from the Kurdish case as, you know, when you have an oppressor that is determined to exterminate you and destroy your existence, then sometimes and most of the time, the only option left is to physically resist, which means violent, you know, either uprisings or uh, attempts at revolution. I think the, just lastly, I think the discussion of around you know, violence to prevent further violence and, and therefore certain ideas of achieving democracy. And again, in an ideal world, these would happen in non-peaceful ways where two parties can negotiate for, uh, for some sort of settlement or solution. But the truth is when we, I think when we discuss it in, this, in that framework, it really, it really disregards the unequal power relations that exist in the world you know, the unequal power relations between states and non-state actors, between the state and, you know, women, between the state and um, in, you know, in historical cases, it's uh, colonial, you know, subjects. So I think, I think, you know, I certainly agree with that. In many cases, violence is, has been necessary.
2: Elif, thank you very much for that thought. We're now going to turn to a, a little bit of interaction between our panel on a variety of the really interesting subjects that they've brought up and one of the things I want to throw out there is the idea that perhaps we put too much of an opposition between violence and non-violence. Many activists would argue that, in fact, they're aspects of a similar process. The way I'd like to get into this, actually, Tariq, is to turn to you and ask about perhaps the single most famous figure associated with non-violence. And that, of course, is Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi. How do you see Gandhi's tactics? He is regarded as essentially as the single most successful user of non-violent tactics. Doesn't he therefore make the case
3: for their applicability and their wider usefulness? Well, Gandhi was never a dogmatic believer in non-violence. When it served his needs, he came out and supported violence. He supported uh, the British during the First World War, was active as a recruiting uh, sergeant, Uh, for people to join the Indian Army to go and fight for the British. He supported the Indian military intervention in Kashmir, immediately after partition. So, you know, there's the early Gandhi and the late Gandhi. The only cases where he was a firm believer in non-violence was in the independence struggle against the British. Because both he and Nehru, to a a, a large extent, Indian uh, leaders, freedom leaders, uh, believed that the British could be negotiated out of India and you didn't need violence, whereas the third leader, Chandra Bose, who was also very popular, believed the opposite. So I think Gandhi's nonviolence, which too much has been made of it, was largely tactical based on his assessment of the colonial power that he was fighting.
2: Are you suggesting there wasn't a distinct point of principle behind it in that case. When Tactical he, is a
3: rather sort of damning with faint praise type of word. I think, you know, I mean, a lot of recent literature uh, that has been coming out, Catherine Tidrick's book on Gandhi, for instance, pretty savage uh, and damning books without any praise at all. So I think we have to re-look re- that. I mean, a more impressive figure, in to my mind, in, than Gandhi, Uh, who's not that he wasn't impressive, it's just that, you know, one can disagree with him and see how it was used, was Martin Luther King, who was a very firm believer in nonviolence at a time when black America was seething, angry, raging. uh, There's Malcolm X. Arguing the opposite case, many others, and Martin Luther King, whether you agree or disagree with him, stood firm on that. And that is what won him a great deal of uh, respect. Of course, it didn't save his life. But, you know, that's another story. So, clearly, there are exemplars. I mean,
2: I think there's not going to be, I hope, anyone in this uh, room who's uh, going to disagree with the view of Martin Luther King as a great nonviolent activist. And yet, the wider case is being made here, Stephen, that you 're going to have to have some serious engagement with violence, whether it 's state violence or resistance, to achieve certain socially desirable aims. Human beings simply
4: can't cut it out altogether well there i think there are argu- there's a, a justification for a you know, just war for in particular cases where the measured use of violence results in greater saving of lives and greater human flourishing than abjuring uh, violence and perhaps the battle against uh, isis is one perhaps the uh, second world war uh, opposition to uh, to hitler is another but those are are um, fairly circumscribed cases and the vast majority of uh, uses of violence and the one, most of the ones that we've heard today don't fall into that category they not only did they create harm in the infliction of violence themselves, but their aftermath was even greater brutality and violence. Uh, I think using the Russian Revolution as an example of why violence is justified is uh, patently absurd. It it led to even greater violence and oppression and some of the worst atrocities in human history, likewise the Chinese Revolution, likewise the French Revolution. And we do know that there are many cases in which, uh, in in fact, violence is not needed to bring about massive uh, changes. Uh, the empowerment of women is uh, a great example. All the, all the victories of feminism in the twentieth uh, century did not result because of, there was a violent women's liberation front. Uh, that that was not necessary. The collapse of the. Uh, so you're empire. saying, for instance,
2: the British suffragettes, who actually did carry out, uh, you know, active resistance in that sense, didn't how have a role.
4: How many people did they kill?
2: Uh, well, they they they, they certainly uh, were willing to take active physical <laughs> violence. Doesn't have to involve killing, of course. No, but it was no, physical confrontation. I mean, that's the point.
4: Well, it was. It, this was not the Russian Revolution. Uh, how many? Pe- I, I'll repeat. How many people were killed uh, in the Russian? Re- in, in in, some, and, yes, by in, the, by the British suffragists.
2: Oh, very few. Some of many yes. of them, many of the, or at least several of them, of course, were killed in the uh, in the struggle. Which uh, yes, but they about.
4: did not uh, they did not achieve their, their uh, goals not, by by killing tens of millions of people. But they did not renounce
2: violence yeah. as a, as a, as a tactic either, which is part of the, it's to do with the
4: principle as well. And uh, I think this is the point. Were they, about, were they armed? Did they have? Uh, did they throw bombs? Did they have? Uh, do they have um, well, they machine were, guns? They were British middle class people in many well, cases. exactly.
2: After all, they used third words. And I, they succeeded. But in that particular, in, in the wider context, though, are you basically circumscribing, to use your words, via some particular principle? You mentioned the Second World War and other examples, too. But the thing is that you know, hard cases make bad law. Are you making the case that essentially, in almost all cases, the use of coercion, the use of violence, really is something that can't be justified, can't be given any kind of
4: standing? I think it can only be justified when it prevents greater violence and suffering, and I think there are are, uh, not that many cases in which uh, that holds. So I I do believe in in just war theory, but there aren't a whole lot of them, and history shows that that, uh, massive numbers of them fail including virtually all of the examples that it was today. Again, the, the battle against ISIS was a, uh, a, would, uh, would be a good example in which violence is justified. Even, however, the, uh, even the Second World War, and I'm gonna say something that's a, mildly heretical here, it did not prevent the, the uh, Holocaust. It did not, uh, it's unclear how many Jews, for example, were saved by the uh, Allied campaign. Uh, in fact, many Jews were saved by nonviolent action, such as in uh, Sweden and, and uh, Denmark. A lot of the activities of the Allies during World War II cannot be justified, such as the uh, bombing of civilians in uh, th- throughout uh, Germany. And uh, a little bit of a heretical question, but, if, but from today's perspective, if we ask how many of the goals could have been achieved by uh, by resistance, by internal sabotage, by the techniques that that brought down the Soviet Empire. It's a question worth asking. I suspect that in the case of World War II, there was no choice but to fight Hitler with, with uh, violence. But still, the question of how much violence, uh, how much good, uh, good did it do, what were the alternatives ought to be raised. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers?
1: And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: And Elif, you would say in the context of the conflicts that you know most about, and very current ones as well, really that perhaps that justification of just war is the way to understand why violence is is necessary in those cases?
0: Uh, Undoubtedly, I think the resistance against Uh, The Kurdish resistance against ISIS uh, was, I obviously think it was necessary. But I do think when we do talk about violence, I think, and this is why I try to say, you know, at the beginning where the framework in which we talk about violence needs to be broadened in the way that I know we're talking, it seems like we're talking specifically about war. So maybe we shouldn't call it broadly violence, but call it war because arguably civilization was built on violence.
2: It's an interesting combination of the way in which action and language come together in that case. Tariq, I want to bring up someone who you've written a great deal about and thought a great deal about, and that's Lenin. And we've heard from Stephen the Russian Revolution as an example in Stephen's view of how violence can go horribly wrong. One of the things that's very evident in some parts of Lenin's writings, particularly in the early 20th century, are... Not just the regrettable necessity to use violence to transform society, but actually violence really as a performance, terror and violence as a way of showing there's a new world, a new regime. In that kind of explanation, terror and violence become almost a desirable thing because they show a different way of operating society. Can that sort of use of... Terrorism and violence, uh, terror and violence, that 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 particular Leninist take be
3: justified in in our own era, do you think? Well, if you read what he said, uh, actually, carefully, basically, the position he was making is that no ruling class ever gives up power voluntarily. And in order to defeat the ruling classes, and, you know, let's not pretend what these countries were. Russia was an absolutist monarchy. Tsarist rule was not particularly uh, uh, pleasant for the people prior to the Russian Revolution. Uh, Large numbers of serfs were treated no better than uh, slaves despite the Emancipation uh, Declaration. So the logical conclusion of many of the arguments against the revolution implied that somehow what existed before was better. Putin says the same thing, by the way. That's the official line now, the worship of czars and tsarism, and the Orthodox Church, who carried out more pogroms in Europe prior to Hitler than any other regime. So uh, let's not forget that. Let's not forget all the attempts that were made to reform these regimes. Uh, by women. I mean, prior to the Lenin and the Bolsheviks, you had a huge anarchist current led largely by women. So the the, the activists like
2: Sofia Pirovskaia and so forth. But that still takes us back to the question, which is in that case, if you accept all of those um, preceding events, can Lenin's statements that in some cases essentially the performance of violence is not just a sad
3: necessity, but actually something that has its own virtue he justified. But, Rana, I have never read, and I have read quite a lot of Lenin, uh, a phrase, the performance of violence. <laughs> no, that's not... My... I mean, this is your summary of it. Well, yep. I would challenge that. Okay. I don't think he argued that. But, I mean, the the other point worth making is that violence, you know, one sort of violence is killing people. Another sort of violence is structural violence. The famines in India. Who took the decision? The British War Cabinet under Churchill. Millions die. So let's take Latin that point, America. Let, let's take structural that structural violence. Let, let's take
2: people. that p- precise yeah. point
3: to, to Stephen, if we may,
2: then Tarek. So maybe part of the problem is the definition of violence you've given us, Stephen. While it's immensely wide-ranging, war, revolution, and so forth, doesn't include that wider structural definition in which state action by action or inaction, famines, and so forth are also immensely violent acts against the people.
4: Well, if there is a a, a deliberate uh, imposition of a a famine, such as um, the Holodomar by the the Soviet Union against uh, Ukraine, uh, Mao's Great Leap Forward, which was some combination of malice and incompetence, uh, if it was intended or not prevented when it could have been prevented, that would count as violence. I think a lot of what's called structural violence could be defined as not violence. I believe Lenin was also mistaken. There are plenty of examples in which uh, governments have relinquished power without violence. There was a massive wave of democratization since the 1970s. Uh, government, the uh, fascist governments in Spain and Portugal, many of the military and uh, right-wing governments in East Asia, in Latin America, many of them ceded power without violence. Now, of course, we also have a, a transition in history. Huge acts of violence in
3: Korea, huge acts of violence against the population by the military, A revolution in Portugal toppled that particular dictatorship, a revolution which started in 74 and ended in 75. And the only reason violence couldn't be used against that was the military was split, and a large section of the Portuguese army and soldiers fought with the people. So, you know... It's, it's sort of quite it, useful
4: to know one's history before making broad no, decisions. No. Well this is no no you can't use the fact that, that a regime itself committed violence as a justification of violence, particularly when they were overthrown with, with very little violence. So the fact that, they, that there's violence against women doesn't is, does not mean that violence is justified it's a stronger argument that any tactic available should be used to prevent that violence, and very often, the tactics that are effective are not violent. Again, this is not to say that violence is never justified. It can just just be justified all too easily. It's not so hard to get a lot of young men to commit uh, mass murder, especially when you give them a a, a rationale for it. The question is, uh, is that the... uh, Do the circumstances where violence can be justified um a- actually uh, exist is it the case that the only way to prevent greater violence is by the measured use of violence in can many cases the answer is no so what
0: what tactics do you think can be deployed to prevent violence against women
4: well the ones that have well for, I'll give you an example in the united states the rate of uh, rape of uh, domestic violence and domestic murder have fallen by about seventy-five percent since records were first kept in the nineteen seventies. Um, and as far as I know, there was no violence that was uh, meted out in order to achieve those goals. There were uh, there were arguments, there were protests, there was legislation. Uh, There was activism, but there was no uh, anti-rape women's liberation front uh, involving guerrilla action or terrorism or armed resistance. There was fantastic success through the democratic process.
0: So you think, so this is the, it's fallen 75% as official records. Because I'm sure many people are aware here that, that the the majority of women who especially experience domestic violence never, ever end up reporting it. No, these and are based
4: on victims, victimization surveys, not on reports to the police. Because, indeed, reports to the police would be an inaccurate source of evidence. But, in fact, this just, if anything, this underestimates the decline because women are more likely to report... Uh, v- uh, violence now than they would have been uh, when when this was kept in the shadows in the, in the most history. But that's also a
0: particular demographic, is what I'm trying to say. I know from many many communities. You know, you, I, I I was I was born in London, so I know more about the UK. But I know of many uh, communities of women who wouldn't report it because even in their communities, it's seen as a taboo. And what I'm trying to say is, I think, I think in some Cases when we talk about these, and this is what I've been trying to say since the beginning the framework in which we talk about certain things are very important because it's really important to understand our position when we are analyzing something to be able to carry out a meaningful analysis. Could I
2: pick up on exactly that point and ask you to turn back to your experiences overseas again? Because something that I think I suspect unites us all on this panel and probably in this room is that we would agree that ideally we would create a society with as little violence in it as possible. And something that I think is very different from Canada or the United States or even the United Kingdom is that places that have very recently directly been through deeply traumatic, deeply violent experiences, war and revolution, often find it very difficult to move past that. It's hard to create a peaceful society out of one that has experienced real violence in the very recent past. How do the places that you've been and visited engage with that issue?
0: I think the difference between what's happening in northern Syria from the rest or from other examples perhaps is that they didn't wait until let's say the defeat or uh, the defeat of ISIS or the end of the resistance against ISIS to build or transform their society. It was happening exactly at the same time. So in many revolutions, unfortunately, especially the position of women has been the same or if, if not worse than before the revolution. But in this case, they said they decided that even the form, the structure, the fight against ISIS takes, it, it would embody what they're trying to build. And that was that it was an act of resistance. Everyone that is given a gun has to receive um has to re- receive women's liberation education first so no man does or that woman include the women
2: who get the guns yeah of course could i take that in some ways somewhat optimistic sounding story and put something to, to steven you mentioned democratization as one of the benefits of how we're you know getting more peaceful but burma myanmar is a country which has not fully but significantly democratized in the last 10 years and has simultaneously been subjected to one of the most horrific bouts of inter-ethnic violence that we've seen in the world how do those two things gel with each other? Is, is maybe democratization
4: part of the problem sometimes rather than the solution? Well, I don't know if it's part of the problem, but it's not, it, it doesn't uh, guarantee a solution if, if it is not accompanied <coughs> by um, robust declarations of rights, red lines that, democratic governments may not cross, such as imprisoning or uh, forcibly moving or killing citizens. So that's why democracy can't just be popular democracy in the sense of whatever the majority want, they can have. Uh, It's the majority are circumscribed by declarations of rights that, uh, that, that limit what governments can do. That's clearly been breached in Myanmar.
3: Tarek. Well, I mean, we've been discussing violence and non-violence, but we, no one so far has mentioned Israel-Palestine. And what is going on day in and day out in the occupied territories and in Gaza is pretty horrific. Now, the Israeli argument used to be that as long as the Palestinians carry on using violence against us, we will reply in kind. Whatever you think of that argument, it was an argument, Okay. But since that period, a large bulk of the Palestinians, both in Palestine and outside, have been supporting a totally nonviolent movement, BDS. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. This is completely nonviolent, based on arguing the case. They are now told that you can't even argue that case in some parts of the world that to argue for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against an Israeli government, which is an oppressive, brutal regime, as far as Palestinians are concerned, and which has just passed through laws, which its own top intellectuals have described as racist. So here's a choice. Constant terror attacks by tiny Palestinian groups, nothing on the scale of the Israeli attacks, or a peaceful BDS movement. What happens to a people when they're told you can do neither? And the entire corpus of Western governments and their human rights do, does absolutely nothing except pander to this. Now this is a very real problem. Here you have a nonviolent resistance taking place. So what do we do? That's not allowed either.
4: Uh, Stephen. Well, you asked the question, what, what do we do? Is the answer to have more intifadas, to have more uh, terrorism, has that been effective? Well, but, I'm I mean, asking but, you about BDS. Yeah. Do you think that's justified? Um, I, I think the particular—I think it is certainly much more justified than, than an intifada, yeah. Uh, or than, than violent yeah. Yeah. But resistance. But the, I, I don't... What about make, the violence if, of the
0: Israeli state? Is that not terrorism?
4: Well, it's no, it's not terrorism. I mean, I think you, it's uh, it's state violence, uh, and and states do commit violence. But if you want to argue that violence is bad and that states don't commit it, that that is my point. So you can't uh, you can't say uh, violence is justified. Uh, uh, But not when Israelis do it. If violence is not justified, it's not justified. That strikes me
2: as if we had another two hours, we would have a whole extensive debate and uh, I'm sure that we we would uh, have even more to discuss at that point. Plenty of thought provocative uh, on all sides from our panel. Many thanks to Tariq Ali, Elif Sajjan and Stephen Pinker.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Next week... We are joined by Julian Berghini, who hosts a podcast on the morality of the tribe. Is it ethical to care most about friends and family and those closest to home? Barrister and founder of Effective Giving, Natalie Craigill, Oxford political theorist David Miller and human rights activist Peter Tatchell examine this fundamental moral question. Let us know what you thought of this podcast by getting in touch on Facebook and Twitter at the Institute of Art and Ideas. And on our website at TV for thousands of more talks and debates. And subscribe for many more episodes of Philosophy for Our Times.